Uh, Let's turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, if you haven't turned there already. Um, As we look, we're going to slow down a little bit. Uh, We've been kind of going about a chapter or so um, each time. Um, And now we're going to slow down a little bit because um, really chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is the conclusion, if you will, of the second part of Genesis. Um, You have a prologue, which is the days of creation, and then you have in chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 4, talks about how the earth is populated, how uh, the first uh, human beings were put in the garden, and then... The, the aftermath of that. Then in chapter 5, we have these, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And that goes on to the end of chapter 6, verse 8. Starting in chapter 6, verse 9, we're going to see the generations of Noah as we're going to look now at the flood. But this is the lead up to the flood. So it's going to be a little bit of a smaller section here. But also, if you remember, um, you know, the first 11 chapters. Uh, cover a vast amount of time, right? From from creation to the time of Abraham. So you're looking at, if you take a young earth perspective, which I do, you're looking at approximately 2,000 years of history crammed in 11 chapters, give or take. Um, You know, creation, if you use, if you stack the genealogies, you know, one right after the other, creation begins somewhere around 4004 B.C., and, and Abraham is supposedly around 2200 or so B.C. I don't know the exact date. Uh, I forget the exact date. But you're looking at about close to 2,000 years of history, all in 11 chapters. And then if you think about, you know, the rest of the Old Testament covers another 2,000 plus years. So that's, you know, the rest of the 38 and a half books. <laughs> uh, and then the New Testament covers a span of about 30 years. So, um, you know, we're going through this pretty quickly. And again, if you remember, you know, chapter 5, I mean, we sped through 1,500 years of history there as we looked at all the generations from Adam to Noah, the 10 generations from Adam to Noah. So, so as we look, you know, just a bit of a brief recap on Genesis 5. Again, we're in that second part of, of Genesis, you know, the the parts kind of flow in the text where you know, you've got these markers. This is the book of the generations. These are the generations. Or this is the book of the history. Or however it's, it is in your Bible. Um, these are natural boundary markers in Genesis that sort of show you know, different parts of the story that God has revealed to Moses. Again, remember, this is written by Moses. All five of these first five books, particularly Genesis... And, and, and Moses is giving the people of God as they're about to enter into the promised land their history, where they came from. Because they're about to go into the land of Canaan, and they're, the promised land, and they're going to expel all these people. And they, you know, part of the reason is, well, they need to know why. And, 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 and it's kind of all being drawn out, in, in particularly in the book of Genesis, the history of the land, the history of the people, their forefathers, what they went through, and now they're going to go in and they're going to uh, reclaim the land that was given to them at the very beginning when God promised it to Abraham. But here, this is all what we would call primeval history, uh, all of this before the time of Abraham. And in Genesis 5, uh, we saw um, the line of succession, if you will, or the, line, you know, the genealogy of Adam. It goes from Adam to Seth, and we looked at the ten generations here. And one of the things you see here, and really the the main thrust of what you see in this passage, aside from the long lifespans and and so on and so forth, is I I call it the legacy of death. What you have here is, as you go through this generation, these generations here, this genealogy, this refrain goes over and over again where it talks about a person, how many years he's lived, uh, the, the, the son that was born to him that is being tracked in the genealogy, 
And then it talks about how he died. And you see this, and he died, and he died, and he died. The only exception, of course, being Enoch, who was a righteous man, uh, who walked with God, and God said, come on up, uh, just like Elijah, come on up, and, and uh, you will not taste physical death. Um, but everyone else in this list dies. Now, of course, the long lifespans indicate, to me at least, that man was not meant to die. Um, but this is, the, again, the legacy of sin, the legacy of death. Adam sinned, and that opened the door to bring death uh, that followed after sin. And this is, the, again, the, the result. The wages of sin is death, and that's what you see here. All of these people, not only do they have the guilt of the, the sin of Adam, but they have their own sins that they are bearing as well that uh, uh, results in their deaths. But you get this tracing here of the line of Seth and and the line of Adam, I should say, through Seth. Uh, We saw the line of Cain um, uh, earlier in the end of chapter 4 and how his uh, descendants go further and further into sin. There's a couple of things that come out of uh, Cain's line. Not only do they go further and further into sin, but you also see um, technological development. You see advancements in metallurgy, in the arts, in agriculture. So mixed with the descent into sin, which is high, it, it, you see the height of that, or the depths of that, probably a better way of saying it, with Lamech, who uh, boasts before God for killing a man. In that, you also see the fact that these people also developed a lot of technology. These were not dumb primitives that we tend to think of today. We think we're so smart today. I would suggest that the people back then were far smarter, far more uh, ingenuous, innovative, thank you. (laughs) That's when I trip up on my words. (laughs) It's been a long day. They were more innovative, uh, far more advanced than we are. So anyway, that's what we saw. We saw this this line descending, and it ends with Noah. And it ends with Noah in verse 32, chapter 5, uh, whom his father, the other Lamech, the good Lamech, uh, names him Noah, and the word, the name for Noah is derived from the Hebrew word that means rest um, and relief, and, and the, the, the thinking is that perhaps this is the one. Perhaps Noah is the one who will bring us relief uh, from not only the toil that we, we uh, are burdened with in our lives, but also maybe this is the seed of the woman. Perhaps this is the seed of the woman, the one who will, who will right all the wrongs. And, and of course, you know, we know the rest of the story. He's in the line of the seed of the woman, but he is not the seed of the woman. So when we get to chapter 6, as I said, the first eight verses of chapter 6 really sort of bring the second part uh, to a conclusion, and it, it ends with the imminent judgment of the earth as God looks upon the sin of the world and uh, says he is going to bring judgment on the world for the wickedness that has, that has grown, and we're going to look at that as we look at these verses tonight. But anyway, let me, um, let me pray, we'll read the verses, and then we'll dig in. So, Heavenly Father, as we get ready to look at these verses tonight in Genesis chapter 6, we pray as always, Lord, that by your spirit we will, uh, you will assist us in understanding and uh, comprehension of the things being taught here. Uh, as always, too, we pray that you will help us to see Christ revealed in, in, the, in the Old Testament. As he says, everything points in the Old Testament points to him. We pray, Lord, uh, that we see a, a reminder, too, of the wages of sin, which is death and eventually judgment coming upon our sins. And just as in the days of Noah, Lord, we know that final judgment will come just as swiftly as our Lord himself promised when he said the same thing. So, Lord, watch over our time tonight, bless our time tonight, and help us. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide, or my spirit shall not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, uh, the, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, my favorite word, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So there you have it, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. As I said, this is going to end the second part of Genesis, and it's going to introduce uh, the character of Noah, who will take the the narrative of these early chapters of Genesis until the end of Genesis chapter 9. So we'll be uh, with Noah for a little bit of time, and it's going to end in judgment. But Noah, of course, will be preserved and saved through this judgment. Uh, But the judgment is coming because the wickedness of man is growing and spreading throughout the earth. So... Uh, The big idea for tonight is the effects of the fall permeate the earth, but God spares Noah and his family. The wickedness or the effects of the fall permeate the earth, but God spares Noah and his family. Now, before we just get started, I want to say one more thing is by way of introduction, okay? These eight verses, really, in the first four verses... Okay, there are a number of difficulties here, okay? There are at least four interpretive, translative difficulties here. So I'm going to have to tread a little carefully here because there's been various interpretations on some of these things. And, um, you know, you may believe differently than I do. Uh, I'm not going to say that my way is the right way. I'm just trying to interpret this the best way I can, but there are at least four difficulties, and we'll address them as we get here. So just to let you know, this was, this was not an easy passage, particularly those first four verses, okay? But we're going to look first in verses 1 and 2 as we see growing wickedness, growing wickedness. So again, as we saw at the end of chapter 5, we saw the ten generations since Adam, about 1,600 years, if you want to be specific, it's... 1,500, I think, in 60 years, or 1,566 years, rounded up to 1,600 years. 1,600 years. Many sons and daughters are born, right? That's what we see here. Not only do you see the names of the people and the name of the child or the son that they highlight, but then we see that he had, that person would have other sons and daughters. Each of them had other sons and daughters. So the population of the world is growing, Okay, 15, 1,600 years of procreating, and you've got people all over the place. Many sons and daughters were born. And chapter 6 then opens up by saying, when man began to multiply. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, because that's what God wanted originally. That was the original intention of man. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what God wanted man to do. Be fruitful and multiply in the face of the earth. So, so far, this is in line with the be fruitful and multiply mandate that we saw in chapter 1, verse 28. There's one problem, though. The earth is not filling with the glory of God. <laughs> the earth is filling with the sin of man. man you, uh, broken, fallen, shattered image of God is being propagated. Over and over again. This, and, and what you have now is a growing wickedness filling the earth. Growing wickedness filling the earth as the broken, fallen image of man, uh, uh, image of God in man, I should say, is filling the earth. And then in verse 2, as I said here, we have the first of four difficulties in verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Okay, well, what's difficult about this? Well, the question comes, who are the sons of God? That's the question. Now, there are three answers to that question. Two major ones. One's kind of a variation of one of the answers. The first answer is that they are fallen angels. Okay, why do I say that? Well, because if you look in the book of Job... Not everywhere. Yeah. Uh, he said everywhere in Scripture that refers to the sons of God refers to angels. And I said not everywhere because we're called sons of God. We saw that in Galatians 3. Yeah. So in Job chapter 1, verse 6, uh, this is in the beginning of Job. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And, and there's a couple other places in Job that refer to uh, the sons of God. And uh, it's almost unanimous opinion of, of commentators and scholars that that is a reference to angels. The sons of God are angels. Um, and then you have in the New Testament, in Second Peter... Uh, chapter 2, verses 4, verse 4. Now, it doesn't say sons of God here, but the uh, verses 4 and 5 uh, says here, uh, in Second Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell or into Tartarus um, and committed them to chains or the pits of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then in verse 5 it says, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah. So they make a con- the connection there that these fallen angels are connected to the time of Noah. Uh, there's one other reference to this and it's, it's very similar to Second Peter and that's in the book of Jude. Where if you have a new Bible, your pages might be stuck together, so you might have to separate it because Jude's only one page long. Uh, in Jude, he says essentially the same thing um, in, in verses 5 and 6 of that book. It's only one chapter. Where he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Um, So one argument is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Now that's also a view that traditionally um, Jewish people have held as well. Now there's a second view, is that these these sons of God are tyrannical human kings who are possibly demon-possessed. This is a view that is held by some more modern Jewish rabbis, not uh, ancient uh, uh, Jews. Uh, So these are tyrannical human kings who are possibly uh, demon-possessed. The third view is that these are the male descendants of Seth. So, uh, and to, to back that view up, and again, if you remember in chapter 4, we saw the line of Cain. In chapter 5, we saw the line of Adam through Seth. And you see these two lines going in, you know, these two lines which will be uh, followed throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, so the sons of God would be the godly people, right? Because it says at the end of chapter 4, uh, to Seth was also born a son, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the godly line, sons of God, the daughters of men would be the daughters of the line of Cain. Now, all three views have strengths and weaknesses. The fallen angel view, as was said uh, in the Old Testament, whenever you see sons of God, it typically refers to angels. Though in the New Testament there are sections where uh, we are referred to as sons of God through our adoption by Christ. Um, but one of the main problems I have with this view is it's, 
Because we're going to see this, right, in chapter, in verse 4, um, that the God, sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So what you're saying, essentially, if you, if you hold the fallen angel view, you're essentially saying that fallen angels have the ability to incarnate, become human enough in order to procreate with actual human beings and then bear a race of half-human, half-demonic uh, beings. Uh, I think that's asserting to even demons abilities I don't think they have. Now, we do see angels taking human form, uh, most specifically as, we'll get, as we progress through Genesis. Genesis 18, you see a theophany where God appears with two angels. Now, the thing is, they're not human beings. They're in human form. There's a very big, that's a very specific difference there. Um, angels are allowed to assume human form. They, are not, they cannot become human beings. They cannot take on a human nature. There's only one spiritual being who has done that, and that is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature and became fully man. Um, so you're saying here then that fallen angels can somehow procreate successfully with human beings. I, I have a problem with that. Um, but I'm not saying that it's, you know, there's problems with the other, uh, the other answers to this question too. Because if you say the male descendants of Seth, which is a view I kind of lean toward, they're not all of them were godly. Right? To say that, they're, that the, son, the line of Seth was the sons of God, not all of them were godly. I mean, some of them were. Certainly Enoch was godly. Certainly Noah was godly. Uh, you can imagine maybe most of the names mentioned in chapter 5 were godly. But not all of them were godly. Um, it's, a hard, um, it's hard to settle on any one view here. Though I think the weakness of the fallen angel view is what tilts me in other directions. I mean, as I said, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not sure where to fall exactly. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. That's why this is a difficulty of this passage. Um, but I, I just, you know, as I think about it, and as I studied this, I mean, I looked at so many commentaries on this, and, and they're all over the place. <laughs> uh, some said, yeah, fallen angels. Some said, no, this is, this is referring to the line of Seth. Um, so, it, I, now we could take interpretation by vote. <laughs> um, but the point is, here's the point. More importantly, look at the, the language there. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took. Saw, attractive, took. It's the same language that is used of Eve in the garden when she sees the fruit. When Satan tempts her with the fruit, she saw that it was good and attractive, that it was good for food, and then what did she do? She took it, right? So whatever the case may be, we are seeing here Growing wickedness, growing wickedness. These, I, I, you know, this idea of saw, attractive, took, I don't think they went out and courted and went on dates and, and you know, <laughs> went, to the, you know, went to the carnival and then went to the sweet treat afterwards and, and so on and so forth. No, I think we're talking, you know, taking. <laughs> you know, let your imagination run with that one. I don't want to be too graphic here. And then as we, you know, just as a word of application here, in a world that has rejected God and gone after its own way, it's no surprise then that wickedness spreads. That's why I think what the, the point I want to take away from this. Whether the sons of God are angels, whether they're, whether they're uh, the godly line of Seth, whether they're tyrannical demon-possessed kings, the point is, is that wickedness is growing because you have a world that is, is growing in its, in its rejection of God, growing in its... In, in its charting its own path, uh, ignoring God and, and the law written on their own hearts. Now, again, there's no law given in the sense of like you get in uh, Exodus 19 with the giving of the Ten Commandments, but there's a law in their hearts. These people are created still in the image of God, though that image is broken, and they know right from wrong. 
right? They know right from wrong. How do we know that? Because that's what Paul says in Romans 1. They know God. They reject Him. It's not a question of, well, there's not enough evidence to know that there's a God. No, there is a God. He, he made you. You know that, and you reject that in your own unrighteousness. And that's what we see here going. Is it really any different in our world today? If it was wicked back then, how much more wicked is it now? Right? Remember a couple of weeks back, a couple of times back, lessons back in Genesis 4, if the blood of Abel cries out to God for vengeance, what is the blood of uncounted millions of people who've been murdered, including 60 some odd million babies in the womb? What does that blood say? Vengeance, right? Avenge me, O Lord. Just like the martyrs under the, te- under the altar in, in, in Revelation 6 who cry out to the Lord. How long until we are avenged? How long until you, you bring judgment to vindicate us and to deliver us? It's no different in our world today. In fact, if judgment came then, which it is coming, is not a greater judgment yet to come. Right? Is not a greater judgment yet to come. I think of Paul's words in Romans 2. In Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, where he's, he is laying out the law to them. He says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead, lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's an interesting passage because in those first three chapters of of Romans, uh, Paul uses this idea of revelation, this this revelation of the wrath of God, of the righteousness of God. He says in in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all of the ungodliness and wickedness in the world. And then to the moral person who says, well, I'm not like that. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I follow the law. I'm a good person. And he says, no, no, no. Do you, don't presume that you are going to escape this wrath because in your case, the wrath that is due to you is being stored up until it will be revealed at the end when Christ comes. So this is the time for you to repent. Right? This is the time for you to repent so that the wrath, that dam that is holding back the wrath of God does not break and, and just pour out all over you. We're going to be going back and forth to 2 Peter, so you might want to keep a bookmark in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come. We're probably going to look at this a couple times. But in the first ten verses of this chapter... Peter here writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 3, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, just pause there for a moment. Peter is predicting this now. Second uh, Peter, written probably somewhere in the early 60s, give or take. This is, what, 30 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And he's predicting that even now scoffers are going to come and say, where is his return? So if they're scoffing already 30 years after Christ is resurrected and ascended, where is his return? How much do you think they're scoffing today? 2,000 years later. Where things are just going on. as they, And that, again, that's the mindset of the unbelieving world, right? They look at the world, everything just goes on as it always has. Right? Everything goes on as it always has. Things, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So that's the original creation. And that by means of these, the world that then existed 
was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood, the judgment that came in Noah's day. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then this classic passage here. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Just like it was in the days of Noah, right? That's what Jesus says. In the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and all of a sudden the rain fell. <laughs> You're like, what's that? <laughs> I, just, I felt a drop in my head. What happened? It's like, um, and Noah's like, that's what I was telling you guys about. <laughs> that's what I've been telling you about for 120 years as I'm building this ark. You're like, what's an ark? Well, rains are coming. <laughs> the flood's coming. Uh, judgment's coming. That's the point. And he refers to the, the flood judgment. He's like, how much more now? How much more that the world will be destroyed uh, by fire? Judgment's coming. Uh, and it will come and it will catch the world um, unprepared. Most of the world will be unprepared. And if, if Noah's day deserved judgment again, I say, how much greater judgment do, do we deserve? Does our world now deserve, given everything that has happened in it since then? Well, now we look at, first we see the growing wickedness, now we see God responds in verses 3 and 4. Uh, and now in 3 and 4, there are <laughs> a couple more uh, difficulties here. Uh, verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in or contend with. Uh, sorry, my, that was my arm covering the microphone there. Uh, uh, my, my spirit shall not abide in man or contend with man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So again, you have this, these two difficulties here. What does it mean that God's spirit will not strive, abide, or contend with man? And what is the meaning of the 120 years? Um, I think this is a little easier, to, to, in, in my mind at least, to interpret. I think this verse seems to suggest that because of the growing wickedness on earth, God is either going to shorten man's lifespan or bring judgment in 120 years. Now we know that after the flood, what happens? Well, the lifespans begin to shrink, right? You know, they start off 600 years, 500 years, 400 years, 300 years, 200 years. Uh, Abraham lived 175 years. Um, Joseph, his great-grandson, lived 110 years. So, so um, Jacob was, what, 137? Yeah, yeah, 130. And I like how he says it. He says, and all those days were, were with, uh, <laughs> what did he say? They were toilsome and, and, and filled with, with uh, sorrow. Um, so it could be talking about the shortening of the lifespans. Um, I think, the most, I think what makes most sense here is, though, that the judgment is coming in 120 years. Because um, we learn that Noah was six years, uh, six years old, 600 years old. He'd be a very smart six-year-old. He was 600 years old. In chapter 7, verse 6, he was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. Now you look, okay, well, yeah, but at the end of chapter 5, it says Noah was 500 years. That's only 100 years. Well, it doesn't mean that's when Noah started building the ark. It's just, that's just what they mention in the genealogy, right? He was probably 480 years when he started building the ark, and, and it took him 120 years uh, to construct it, and in 120 years, judgment is coming. I think that's the best way to understand this. And the idea of abiding, or st- basically it's, it's suggesting that the Lord is not going to put up with our wickedness forever, right? He's not going to abide with, he's not going to, his spirit will no longer restrain the world from its sin because he's going to bring judgment upon it. I mean, even now, if you think about how wicked our world is, God is restraining quite a bit. You know, think about if he pulled his hand back. You know, that, that's, that's how bad things could get. Um, you know, again, like I said, keep, you know, Peter. But in 1 Peter uh, 3, and this is, again, to show the long-suffering of God, if you think about it. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, not 2 Peter, but 1 Peter 3. Um, 
I'm going to read, the, the verse I really want to look at is verse 20, but I'm going to start in verse 18, because I hate starting in the middle of a sentence. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they, verse 20, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So again, the days of Noah, God was patient with them. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5, again, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You know, what was Noah doing when he was building an ark? Well, he was a herald of righteousness. He was, in a sense, evangelizing, saying, judgment is coming. God says, judgment is going to come upon this world. And this is, this is the ark of safety, if you will. Uh, believe or face judgment. God was patient. God could have just said, boom, you know, in an instant and just snuffed out everything. But he said, no, 120 years. He, even in, in this wicked world that is, that is growing in wickedness at this time, God is showing his patience. And his forbearance, 120 years. So again, the point, God's patience while long-suffering is not everlasting. There comes a point when the sinfulness of man will breach the dam of God's patience. Again, I I refer back to that verse in Romans 2, verse 5, where the wrath is being stored up until it is revealed. So, yeah, you can you know you could see the fact that God is not bringing wrath and judgment immediately and say, okay, you could be like the people in Second Peter three. Everything continues on as it has since the beginning of creation, and then eventually that dam is going to overflow with the wrath. It will no longer be able to contain the wrath of God that is uh, being stored back there. So I think here we see God's patience, 120 years until the judgment comes. So that's difficulties two and three. Now we have difficulty number four in verse four, uh, where we have here, the Nephilim, or the giants, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So again, the question, who... Or what are the Nephilim or the giants? Now, if your translation says Nephilim, that is a transliteration. By that I mean it's, it's the word taken right out of the Hebrew, written in English letters. The word in the Hebrew is literally Nephilim. And it's believed to be uh, derived from the Hebrew word nephal, which means to fall. Okay? That's how I was taught how to remember that word in my vocabulary. Nephal means to fall because it sounds like fall. Uh, So the fallen ones is kind of how some have translated that. Now the word giants comes out of the, what we call the Septuagint. If you're like, well, what's the Septuagint? Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, the Greek uses the word uh, gigantes, which is, you can kind of hear it as I'm saying that, giant. Okay? So who are these people? Who are these things, these, 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 these giants, these Nephilim? Well, again, there's um, three answers. <laughs> uh, they are the offsprings of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Well, that's right there. We see that right there in the verse. Uh, they are, you could say, they're, well, then, if you believe the sons of God are fallen angels, then they are some, some angel-human hybrid creature. Uh, or they're the mighty men of old. Now, think about this, okay? You hear all of these, you know, if you, if you study any kind of history or whatever, there are all these stories, these fables of these, these larger-than-life heroes. You know, the, the Greek demigods, the, the, the Babylonian, the Sumerian people, like Gilgamesh and so on and so forth. You know, they would have been uh, stories that would have sort of generated sometime around this period of time in, in world history. These mighty men of old, these men of renown. Uh, whoever these Nephilim are, they are filling the earth and they are also adding to this wickedness. Now, the Nephilim are mentioned 
Uh, one other time in the Old Testament, I believe, in Numbers. Um, you can write the reference down. It's Numbers 13.33. Basically, the, in Numbers 13, uh, they, the, the Israelites have come up to the edge of the Promised Land, and they're getting ready to cross over, and they say, well, maybe we should send out some spies into the land to see what's, what, what it's like. So they send out 12 spies, one from each tribe. And they go throughout the land, and they, they spend 40 days there, and they come back and they bring a report. Now, 10 of them are saying, yes. You know, so Moses says, so is the land, uh, land flowing with milk and honey? And they say, yes, indeed it is. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. And is, is the land uh, ample? And is, is it, oh, yes, yes, it's very ample, and it's very ready to, to you know, so what else? Is, and the fruit, what about the fruit? Oh, the fruit, my goodness, the fruit are, are huge and, and everything. It's like, it's wonderful. And so, okay, so can we take it? No. Why? Because there are giants there. And, and we're told in Numbers 13, 33, it says, the sons of Anak, it says, who were from the Nephilim, were in the land. Giants. We're like, giants, really? It's like, yeah. <laughs> right? What was Goliath? Right? Goliath was a, a very large man, okay? Depending on the, now there's some, there seems to be some textual difficulties in the, whether it's, like nine cubits, six, you know, whatever, or whatever. He's either nine foot six or six foot nine. Either way, that's large, okay? But nine foot six, he said he had, you know, uh, his, his spear was like a weaver's beam, okay? He was a big dude, okay? And there's other kings that were, I think King Anak himself was on a bed that was really huge, okay? Anyway, giants, yes, people were very tall and powerful and strong. And it says that these were the Nephilim of old. Um, so giants... Um, however you want to define them. The point is, is that they were there on the earth, and it says, and also afterward, which would seem to lend credence to what we see in Numbers 13.33. And then when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children. These were the mighty men of old. Uh, you see this again in oh, verse 13 of chapter 6. Nope, that's not what I wanted. Uh, Oh, well, perhaps. In verse 13 of chapter 6, uh, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Um, the mighty men, you know, they would have been violent men, men of violence, men of, you know, warriors. Um, you know, again, think of, you know, all of the, the legendary stories of these people. Um, you see it again in chapter 10. Uh, verse 9, talking about Nimrod. He was a mighty man, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and he was the one who built uh, Babel and established the kingdom of Babel. And, and, you know, of course, that's the Tower of Babel eventually gets established there. So these people were, were larger than life, in, literally and figuratively, <laughs> larger than life people who filled the earth with violence and wickedness and were, were part of the cause of why God would send um, judgment upon the earth. So again, as the wickedness on the earth grows long, we see the patience of God begin to grow short. Right As our wickedness grows, his patience begins to shrink. And again, I can't help but think of what's happening in our own day. Um, in Psalm 79, I was thinking of, uh, these are what we call imprecatory psalms. You're like, well, what does that mean? There's psalms in which the psalmist wishes that God's judgment would come upon the enemies of God's people. They're not, they're not the typical cheery and pleasant psalms that you read. Uh, and in Psalm 79, uh, you read this, O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Then verse 5, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Do not remember against us. This is verse 8. Do not remember against us our former iniquities, lest your compassion comes speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. 
Look at verse 11, well, verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Verse 11, let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. So there the psalmist is just praying to God, pour out your judgment on the, on the wicked because they taunt us, they abuse us, they, they, they slaughter us, they, they use our blood to feed uh, the earth. Another one is Psalm 137. Again, these are called imprecatory psalms because they are praying to God to bring judgment on the wicked. Psalm 137. I had a, a guy in seminary who was a year ahead of me who loved the imprecatory psalms. <laughs> and you thought it's like, uh, dude, you've got a bit of a weird fascination there with, with psalms of judgment. But, yeah. Uh, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, uh, there we sat down and wept. So this is obviously written by someone in or during the exile. Uh, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Verse 4, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. The end. You're like, that's not a cheery psalm. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Because the psalmist is remembering the glory of the old days, the glory of Jerusalem back when God was, uh, when Jerusalem had the favor of the Lord. And now he is remembering uh, in exile and the, and the people in exile are saying, sing us one of your songs. I can't sing you one of my songs. I would never sing you one of my songs. May my right hand forget how to play my instrument should I sing you one of my songs. And, and oh, by the way, I pray that the Lord will bring judgment upon you for what you've done to us. You know, and then, you know, in a way, you know, you look at our day today, you look at all the wickedness that's going on in the world, and you know that God is going to bring judgment. And we know that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And, and we are to remain patient and faithful and, and try to strive and, and love even our enemies. But it's hard. It's really hard when you see what's going on in the world today. And... Uh, you know, it, it blows my mind even, just thinking of some of the things. And you, you just pray, come Lord Jesus now. You know, bring this to an end. So, moving on now to verses 5 through 7. God is grieved. God is grieved in cha uh, chapter, five, or chapter 6, verse 5. Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every thought or intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Literally, uh, only evil all the days. All the days. All the time. Wickedness, wickedness, wickedness. God's originally very good creation that was to be filled with the glory and image of God is now being filled with wickedness. With wickedness. Psalm 14. You don't need to turn here. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I imagine the Lord at this point in time looking upon the earth and thinking the words that would eventually inspire Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. 
or that would inspire the words that Paul wrote again in Romans chapter 1, where God's wrath is being revealed and, and on the wickedness of man who continue to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. And you see how then God gives them over and they commit more wicked things and then God gives them over and they go down and down and down and down. What's that? And, and here we are, right? You know, we, we talk about evolution, right? The, the unbelieving world talks about evolution, how we're, how we're getting better and better and better. And Romans, 1, 8, 1, sorry, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following talks about devolution, how we are devolving into greater and greater wickedness. So God sees this. And I think there's no verse in verse 5, I think, that clearly teaches what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Again, it's, total depravity doesn't mean that man is as wicked as he possibly can be. But it means that he's wicked to the core. And that's what this verse teaches. right? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everything. Corrupt to the core, to the heart. The thoughts, the intentions, the actions that flow then from those thoughts. Wicked. And such was the case that the Lord then was sorry. He regretted Right, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, okay, this is anthropomorphic language, okay? That's a big word that means man-like language, okay? The, the way the Old Testament writes and talks about God, it talks about him in terms that we would understand. It's language to accommodate us, okay? God does not have a heart, all right? We talk about the arm of the Lord. God does not have an arm, okay? But it's language that we understand what God is feeling. God does have a spirit. He does have emotions. He does have uh, intellect and a will. And he looks upon this wickedness, and it grieves him to his heart so that he regretted. Now, a lot of people like to make you know, hay about that. You know, that God, you know, that it's God changing his mind, God regretting. You know, it's like, well, why didn't God see this? Again, anthropomorphic language used to accommodate what God is, you know, it's expressing God in language that we would understand. Okay, God is not like that. It's like, wow, I didn't see it was going to get this bad. I regret doing this. No, that's not what's happening. It's just showing how God is, is grieved by our sin. Numbers 23, 19 talks about how God is not like a man who changes his mind, okay, who lies and changes his mind. It's not a change in God, but it's an expression of the grief that he has over our sin. He made man. He made man to be the expression of his image and his glory. And here he is nothing but wickedness and sin. And of course, because of the corruption that has filled the earth, the Lord will now blot out, wipe out, Destroy every living thing from off the face of the earth. Proverbs 16.4 talks about how the wicked is made for the day of destruction. Judgment is coming. Wrath and judgment should be... Though, though judgment is coming, though, I'm going to say something here that may sound in, uh, weird, uh, but judgment and wrath should be seen, as one author puts it, God's strange work, in quotes. There's a book I read called uh, Gentle and Lowly by an author named Dane Ortland, and he's talking about the heart of Christ for sinners, how Christ is gentle and lowly, and it's kind of based off of Matthew eleven twenty eight, how he calls those who are weary and heavy laden, and, and, it, and it talks about God's and Jesus' grace and, and love for sinners. And, and it, there's a section there that talks about how judgment is this strange work. Well, what do you mean by that? Well... God is spoken of as love, right? Um, and, and when God reveals himself to Moses, if you remember this story in Exodus um, 34, this is after the golden calf incident, and Moses comes down and he destroys the tablets, you know, symbolic of the people breaking the law of God, breaking the covenant, and then he goes back up, and he's to make a couple of new tablets, and he asked to see the glory of God. He says, show me your glory. This is in chapter um, 33. Show me your glory. The Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, 
and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He says, but I can't show you my face. You want to see my face? I can't show you my face. No one can see my face and live, but I'll make a deal with you, uh, Moses. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by, and you can kind of see my afterglow. Okay? And then so it happens in chapter 34. He's up on the mountain. And in verses 5 through 7 of chapter uh, 34, it says that the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him, Moses, there. And what does he do? It says he proclaims the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Now, he doesn't say, you know, Yahweh. It's, it's what is representative of God. And here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God vengeful and wrathful? No. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He, is a, he will show vengeance and he will show judgment, but he's a God who is slow to anger. Think about it again, Genesis 6, 120 years. He waits as wickedness continues to grow. Slow to anger, but that anger will come. That patience will run out, but he is a God who is slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who wants to show mercy. And if any of these people would have repented, guess what? God would have, for, would have shown mercy in a heartbeat. Judgment is his strange work. God desires. I mean, think about what it says in Ezekiel. This is popping into my mind where I think it's in Ezekiel 18. He says, God, uh, by no, in no way does God take delight in the death of the wicked, but wants them to come to repentance, but will no, by no means... Acquit the guilty. Well, let's close this up in verse 8. We see here a glimmer of hope as Noah is spared, but. So, in all of this wickedness filling the earth, you have this but here. Uh, Noah found favor. He found grace, favor uh, in in the eyes of the Lord. And that's going to lead into the next section because Noah will be preserved through God's judgment, right? We're told in other places in Scripture that God knows how to preserve His people through tribulation and through judgment. God is, Noah has found favor in the eyes of God. This is not Noah who is righteous in himself. This is Noah who, by faith, has found God's favor. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven seventeen, where there uh, the author of Hebrews says, Once I get to the passage, I'm trying to say words to delay until I can get to the passage. I will get there eventually in Hebrews chapter 11 as I keep turning pages. There I am. Okay. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. We're told here that uh, by faith, right? Because that's the the refrain uh, in, in, in Hebrews 11. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, the flood, in reverent fear, fear of the Lord, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was not a righteous man in and of himself. He was righteous by faith, just like we all are. Just like Moses was, just like Abraham was, just like you and I are. We are righteous uh, in God's sight by faith. As in Hebrews 11.6, right before it, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and, and we're going to see Noah in the rest of, you know, more on Noah comes in, in uh, verses 9 and following as we're going to look at the rest of his life. But beloved, this is a dreadful passage that describes the natural growth of sin in man and on the earth. And again, lest we think that, this, that we're any better, we're not. Uh, the same judgment, if anything, worse judgment awaits uh, this world uh, for its sin and wickedness. 
the judgment declared in this passage and carried out in Genesis 6 and 7 is a pointer uh, to a far more dreadful judgment to come. We saw that in 2 Peter, right? Where Peter there says that though the, the earth of old was deluged with water, the earth is now reserved for fire. And again in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 and following, since then all these things are to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting, for the, and, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This earth will, will pass away. This age will pass away. This unrighteous age will pass away and will uh, transform into a new heavens and a new earth where, as Peter says, righteousness dwells. And the original intention of the creation will now be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Of course, the good news for us is that judgment is something we do not have to fear. Judgment is something we do not have to fear. Why? Because God has paid for our judgment. Right? I, Romans 8.1. That, that should be a verse everyone has circled or highlighted in their Bibles. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus has taken that condemnation for us. There is no condemnation. Judgment, we do not have to fear judgment. We do not have to fear judgment. Why? Because he is the propitiation for our sins. That's what Paul says earlier in Romans. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest, made, made known, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, fancy word for atonement, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Think about, again, that dam of God's patience he, he's not forgetting the sins. He's overlooking them until the time that Christ comes. So now he becomes the just, that, we might, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We don't face condemnation because Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. I could read a couple more verses. Again, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. God took all of our sin and put it on Christ. And then Christ died for us so that we can have his righteousness put on ourselves. Another one, Colossians. You can just write these references down. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14. And I've got one more after this. Colossians 2, 11 through 14. In him, that is Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of our sins. Because that's what they did when they, put, when they hung people on the cross. They were, you, you had to put some kind of sign that indicated what that person was guilty of. Now, of course, the only thing they could put on Jesus' cross was Jesus, cross, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was his big crime. right? You know what else is nailed to that cross? All of our sins. Every single one of our sins nailed to that cross. Because Christ took those sins upon himself and paid for them. One more. Please indulge me. Titus 3. Verses 
Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. That's 2 Timothy. There we go. But when the goodness and loving kindness, again, this is describing God, right? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is why judgment does not affect us, because our sins have already been judged. Christ took that punishment. And now our job, of course, is to present that message. Just as Noah was a herald of righteousness, our job is to take that message out to a lost and dying world. So I'll stop here. Next time, Lord willing, on the 21st, we'll look at the rest of Genesis chapter 6.